You are listening to As a Woman, episode 26, IVF. Listen as I describe IVF as if I would to a patient. I'm going to counsel you through what IVF is, what IVF isn't, and you will know all there is to know about in vitro fertilization. Understand the success rates, limitations, and what you should be considering if you or a friend are going through this process. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition, while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hi, friends. Welcome back to As a Woman. You are listening to episode 26 in vitro fertilization, or IVF. In this episode, I'm just going to talk you through IVF as if you were sitting in my office and I was trying to make you understand it from a patient perspective. I'm going to follow this up with an IVF Q&A in a subsequent episode, so listen to this and then I'll tell you how you can ask questions specifically to be answered that may apply to you. So IVF stands for in vitro fertilization. And in the simplest form, that means fertilization in glass or in the lab. So in a Petri dish in the lab. IVF was first created for tubal factor and the oldest living baby, the first baby, Louise Brown, born from IVF is almost 41 years old. And in medicine, that means this is a new field. There is a lot that we will talk about that we don't have long, long, long term outcomes on. And that's just the reality of where we are. But IVF is the strongest tool that I have. It is the only thing that outperforms nature when it comes to getting pregnant. And it is an option for many couples. So it can be used for tubal factor. It can be used for male factor, for women who don't ovulate regularly. It's also a great option for unexplained infertility, for people who have genetic disorders or for genetic testing, for couples who may carry a genetic disease, or for women who are wanting to preserve their fertility. So there are many different reasons why couples can undergo IVF. And the field has also evolved a ton. So when it was first started, IVF, we would take a woman's egg when she was ovulating naturally. So she would get followed until we thought she was about to ovulate and she would have laparoscopic surgery. So go in and take out the egg surgically from the follicle. And then that would be combined in a Petri dish with sperm to create an embryo, which would be transferred a few days later. One huge game changer for us in IVF is the ability to do controlled ovarian hyperstimulation. And hyperstimulating the ovaries allowed us to get multiple eggs out of the body in one cycle. And this really changed the game for us. But to fully understand IVF, we have to be reminded of how the body normally works because we manipulate the normal axis of hormones in order to do this controlled ovarian hyperstimulation. So if you've heard me speak on this before, I like to view the ovary as if there is a vault inside of it that has all of the eggs that you're ever born with. In that vault, I don't know how many eggs are there, no test can tell me, but we can evaluate the eggs that have been released from the vault that month. Each egg grows inside a follicle and the brain sends out follicle stimulating hormone or FSH in a normal cycle and FSH will stimulate one follicle to grow. This follicle will grow and then it will ovulate. The other follicles that have been released from that vault or the other eggs, they will all die. 
and then you'll have a new group of eggs the next month. And I like to say IVF, when we do controlled ovarian hyperstimulation, is some form of suppressing the brain's normal secretion of hormones so we can override that system and then trying to get all of the eggs to grow that have been released from the vault this month. And that's with higher than normal doses of mostly FSH, but also a little bit of LH or luteinizing hormone. So those are the hormone injections that you take if somebody's going through IVF. And it's really important to understand that each woman is limited by her own potential. And that's okay, but it's very important to set appropriate expectations. So this is where AMH or anti-mullerian hormone and the number of eggs that you have released from the vault that month, the antral follicle count or the AFC, are really important in proper counseling. One woman may get two eggs per IVF cycle and a similar woman of the same age may get 32 eggs. They have different ovarian reserves and a different potential. This is going to drastically change their outcome as far as chance of having a normal embryo or chance of having a successful live birth because there is strength in numbers. So this is really where AMH and the antral follicle count have the most strength. That's in counseling you. So before you do IVF, we need to evaluate your ovarian reserve. This number decreases as you, one, run out of eggs, which for most women is as they get older. So as you get older and have fewer eggs, you will get fewer eggs with IVF, but every woman is different. I certainly have young women who have a low ovarian reserve and they get fewer eggs per cycle. It does not at all mean that IVF is not worth doing, but it does really mean that they have to view this more as a marathon and they may need more cycles than their age match peer who has a normal ovarian reserve. That's okay. It's just important to understand because it will one, take longer and two, cost more money. So part of the art of IVF for us who are fertility physicians is choosing the right protocol for each patient. Our real goal is to get as many eggs as we can into the lab. So when I evaluate a woman and I determine her antral follicle count, that's what I'm hoping to achieve with an IVF cycle. It's really important to understand that your antral follicle count will fluctuate. That vault is not perfect. So there may be a 20 to 30% fluctuation in any given month. And we don't know if that AFC that I did at our new patient appointment, is that your best month or your worst month? Where is the truth in there? But I'm using all the data I know about you to determine what's the option I think has the highest chance of getting you the most eggs in that cycle. I'm using your AMH, your AFC, your age, any other factors I have so that I can make the best decision. As I said before, IVF involves controlled ovarian hyperstimulation, which is done by some protocol of suppression and stimulation. The stimulation is essentially the same. High doses of FSH, there's two main components that we're currently using, and that's folistim or gonal F. They are very similar. They're different enantiomers, but essentially they do the same thing. FSH-only preparations, they are synthetic mimics of your normal hormones. And then there's Menopure. Menopure is a purified hormone out of menopausal women's urine. It contains both FSH and LH because both those hormones are elevated in menopause. 
and it's purified and comes that way. So those are usually the two different compounds that most of us use, some version of an FSH only, and in some combination of Menopure. And there's different ratios of what your dose will be. That is usually decided by your ovarian reserve. So your doctor will choose based on your circumstance and your ovarian reserve what your dose of these medications called gonadotropins should be. Now, typically, you are going to use these gonadotropin injections for 8 to 12 nights. I don't know if you are going to be fast or slow. So when you get your calendar, you'll see the first start day of your medications. You'll see a first few appointments. You usually come in every two to three days for an ultrasound and blood work. And this is called monitoring. We are monitoring how the follicles are growing. We are monitoring your estrogen, determining if we need to make changes to your dose or your protocol, and trying to determine when you're going to have the highest number of mature eggs. But there's some unpredictability. So I can give you the two-week time frame where I'm going to need to see you the most, but I cannot tell you the exact day of your egg retrieval or when this process will be complete because that is different for every woman. When we pair this stimulation, there are different protocols in order to do the suppression. The stimulation part is very similar. The suppression part is really different for each woman. Now, I usually tell my patients that I will describe the protocol that's best for them because I already know a lot about them. And I'll tell them there are other options if this, in fact, appears not to be the best. So if we are not meeting our goal of how many eggs I expect you to get, we'll cancel the cycle and try a different protocol. Yep, there's a little bit of trial and error involved. That's really hard to accept if you're a patient or a woman in general. We tend to like to control things as much as we can. And so understanding that I am making the best decision based on the data I have, however, starting a cycle and not performing as I expect gives me more data. So I may make then a different decision for you. So canceled cycles exist usually when you are underperforming your expectations. But to talk about the different types of suppression protocols briefly, so you can understand what options are out there. One is called an antagonist. An antagonist is a medicine that blocks the brain. The trade names are Ganarelix or Cetratide. These are another sub-Q injection, and this medication is very short-acting, so it has to be taken at a very specific time every day, or you will ovulate through. The thought here is that as your body makes more estrogen, the brain will want to release a signal to ovulate. I would describe that the brain is blind. It has no idea if a high estrogen level is coming from one dominant follicle and it needs to send out the signal to have you ovulate, or if it's coming from multiple small follicles growing in an IVF cycle. So we don't want the brain to do that. We don't want it to prematurely trigger the body to ovulate when you have small immature follicles in IVF. So an antagonist is introduced after the stimulation. So you start using your gonadotropins, your FSH and LH, and as your estrogen starts to rise and your follicles become bigger, you will then start to also use the antagonist to block your body from ovulating. So it's an ovulation blocker. Now, you can do a spontaneous antagonist cycle, which means you call your clinic when your period starts. Hey, my period starts. I'm now going to come into the office on cycle day two, three, or four for an ultrasound. Make sure that I don't have any cysts. This is called the baseline ultrasound. And if everything looks good, then proceed with the medications right away. That's a spontaneous antagonist cycle. 
Now, cysts on baseline are problematic for two different reasons. One is if the cyst is making estrogen, we call it a functional cyst. It's really some type of follicle that's making hormones. And if you have one of those, your body's not going to respond appropriately to the injectable hormones. That being said, if you have a non-functional cyst, sometimes we can proceed with medications. It really just depends on the size of the cyst, how many other eggs you have. If we think that cyst is going to prevent you from getting the response we want, then we will want to wait until that cyst is resolved. Now, I do very few spontaneous antagonists. I like the antagonist protocol. It has a lot of different benefits. So one benefit of the antagonist is that you can use a different type of trigger shot. So I'm going to talk about trigger shots right now. Trigger shots mean a hormone to make you ovulate. So I told you you're blocking the brain. So the brain's not sending out the normal LH signal to tell you to ovulate. So we have two different options for how we can get you to ovulate. One is an injection. Well, they're both injections, but one is HCG. So that's right. HCG is the pregnancy hormone. It actually binds to the same receptor. It has a subunit similar to LH, which is the normal trigger medication. And that will cause you to ovulate or to trigger appropriately. That was the original trigger medication. And subsequently, we have a secondary trigger that we can use only in antagonist cycles, and it's called Lupron. Now, Lupron is an agonist. So when we use these words like antagonist and agonist, we're all talking about for GnRH, which is gonadotropin-releasing hormone. That hormone is released from the hypothalamus and talks to the pituitary gland, and the pituitary gland is where FSH and LH come from. But an agonist means it kind of induces, it supports GnRH or gonadotropin-releasing hormone release. And when you take an agonist, the brain will release whatever stores it has of FSH and LH first versus a GnRH antagonist that actually blocks the release of these hormones from the brain. So we can trigger you with high dose of an agonist and release the normal LH and FSH that you have stored in your brain. This is super helpful for a certain subset of patients. One is women who are at risk for ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome or OHSS. Ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, guys, it's almost a thing of the past. And that's crazy. It used to be one of the most common complications from IVF. And I've seen one case in my six plus years in the field. And that's because we are really doing a good job of selecting the appropriate protocol for certain patients. So patients who have a lot of eggs have a high likelihood of getting a very high estrogen level because each egg makes estrogen and therefore they are at risk of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. OHSS, the pathogenesis behind it is that you have capillary permeability, meaning leaky blood vessels, and they lead to fluid shifting from inside your blood vessels to outside. And you can get really sick. You can get ascites, fluid in your stomach. You can get uh, pulmonary edema, fluid in your lungs. Your blood becomes really thick. You become at risk for DVTs or blood clots in your veins. And you essentially become very dehydrated because you don't have that liquid component inside your blood vessels. You can go into kidney failure. It can be really bad. OHSS limited IVF for a lot of women. Women who had a lot of eggs would have to be triggered really early because their estrogen would be too high. It was a rate limiting step, especially for young women 
or women who had PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, and the expectation was that they would make a lot of eggs. So using a Lupron trigger has allowed us to proceed with cycles with much less concern for OHSS. The other thing that has dropped the risk of OHSS is a frozen embryo transfer. And I'm going to talk on transfers at the end, but just saying those two things have really changed the OHSS game for us. But you can only use a Lupron trigger in an antagonist cycle. So that's one thing I'm thinking about is, are you at risk for OHSS? If so, you need an antagonist cycle. You can do a spontaneous antagonist like I talked about, or we can lead in with birth control pills, which is what I do most of the time. The reason why I and many other REs like to lead in with birth control is that we believe it gets a better, more consistent cohort of eggs growing together. So think of it this way. Birth control, what does it do? It prevents the release of FSH from the pituitary gland. That's how it works. So it's preventing the body from giving any hormone to stimulate egg growth. If we view FSH as the food for the eggs, and I'm now preventing the brain's release of it for two or three weeks, I have a group of eggs that's very hungry, and I have FSH levels that are bottom zero. If I then come in with really high doses of FSH now, so now I'm taking these starved, hungry eggs and giving them a very high dose of their food, I am more likely to get a cohort of eggs that's growing together at the same pace and get to maturity at the same time, and that's really important. It doesn't matter how many eggs you have. If you only have two that are mature and you have 40 that are not, what good did we do there? We're really trying to capitalize and get as many mature eggs as we can. Sometimes you do get lead follicles. That's one of the downsides in these antagonist cycles is we apply the medications and one follicle escapes and starts to lead the way. Sometimes that causes us to bail or cancel the cycle because we're not going to get to that end goal we want. Sometimes we say, okay, we'll let that one egg get a little over mature and keep going, kind of sacrifice one for the group, really depends on you and your situation. But that is one risk. Another risk is a dyssynchronous cohort. So think of it that one group of eggs is mature and the other group did not respond. That's not really the goal. My goal is to try to get as close to 100%. I want to know what is your antral follicle count and how do I get as close as possible to putting the most eggs into the lab to give them the highest chance of working. So other protocol types exist also. All of these other protocols use an HCG trigger, so we want to make sure you're not at risk for ovarian hyperstimulation if we are choosing one of these. And the classic protocol is a long Lupron protocol or a Lupron down. Lupron is that GnRH agonist, and if you use it at low doses every day, we can get a suppression of the pituitary gland hormones, and we can also prevent ovulation that way. Lupron, it takes a little bit longer. That's why it's called the long protocol. It can be, it's started before the stimulation, so it can be started overlapping with birth control pills, which is commonly done, or it can be started in the luteal phase meaning we determine when you ovulate, verify that with a blood test, a progesterone level, and then start the Lupron in the luteal phase. Now, sometimes the Lupron is continued all the way up till trigger. Sometimes the Lupron is stopped upon stimulation. There are other ways that we can make this work and tweak the protocol for what is best for you. And then we have some fringe protocols for people who are not responding as we'd like them to or have very low ovarian reserve. These often take either an oversuppression, 
So sometimes we will lead into a cycle with an antagonist first. So we really suppress everything the brain has got to try to get recruitment of any eggs. There is also estrogen priming, where you take estrogen ahead of time to try to encourage the ovaries to give us all that they've got. There's also some minimal stimulation protocols. So we don't use as strong of drugs because there aren't as many eggs there. So we can use Clomid or lower doses of FSH. That can sometimes help us. And there's also a protocol called a Lupron Flare, where you use that agonist to release all the FSH and LH the brain has at a higher dose at the start of the stimulation, and then you drop it down when you start the gonadotropins. The truth is, you don't really need to understand the fine details in all of these protocols unless you're an REI. So, hey, if you're an REI, you need to understand. But if you're not, you just need to know that different protocols exist. It's really good to ask questions about your protocol so you can understand why did you choose this one for me and also to understand that there is trial and error. I hate to say that again, but I think it's really important to understand that I cannot predict how you individually will respond. And so we're going to try our best based on the data we have. A canceled cycle feels like a failure, but it's not a failure. It is just us gathering more data and refining the protocol that will work best for you. Now, one adjunct with stimulation you may hear some of us talking about is human growth hormone. Really transparent here. Studies are inconclusive on human growth hormone, or HGH. Now, HGH appears to improve the number of eggs that are retrieved and are mature, and their quality, or how they perform in culture after they've been fertilized. However, no study has demonstrated improved live birth rates with the addition of HGH to protocol. I'm constantly, and so are other REIs, using it in women who I am anticipating egg quality being an issue or ovarian reserve being an issue, or if I didn't get the response I wanted from a first cycle, I may be adding HGH on. If your doctor doesn't want to use it, it does not mean anything's wrong with them. They just may be waiting for more evidence, which is perfectly fine. I tell all patients, hey, this is going to be an extra cost. It may or may not benefit us. Studies are still being determined. However, it appears promising on getting more mature and better quality eggs into the lab, which is step one of this process. Okay, so a protocol is selected. You are using your stimulation meds. It is taking on average 8 to 12 days. You're going to be fast or slow, who knows, and you're coming in for your monitoring visits. The more eggs you have, the higher estrogen levels you make, and these labs are being determined, and we're trying to decide where you have the highest number of mature eggs so we can use that trigger shot. The trigger shot actually resumes meiosis. Details maybe you don't need to know, but the eggs are frozen inside your body. They are in a stage where they can't be fertilized. They have to complete a stage of meiosis in order to become fertilizable, and that's what the trigger shot does, and it's very important. Because some women can have a failed trigger, and that means none of the eggs have resumed this meiosis, and they either are not retrieved or cannot be fertilized. So it's important to make sure the trigger shot is appropriate for each given woman, meaning a woman who doesn't have much reserve of FSH or LH in her brain because she's hypothalamic amenorrhea, if that's her diagnosis, using a straight Lupron trigger is not the best idea. So some patients actually get a Lupron trigger with a tiny little dose of HCG. There's a lot of different ways we can do it, but the trigger shot is one, important to do correctly, two, must be done on time. 
The resumption of meiosis, the triggering of the eggs, will lead to ovulation if we don't go in and do an egg retrieval at the appropriate time. For the vast majority of women, the trigger is done 35 to 36 hours before you're going to go in and do the egg retrieval. Some women who've had a lot of immature eggs in the past, we may tend towards a longer trigger time to see if we can get a few more of those from immaturity to maturity. But your clinic will have something standard that they do, but using the trigger on time, super, super important. We actually had a patient not too long ago who when they went to mix their trigger shot, the vial shattered. You can imagine that's a nightmare. The husband calls me in a panic. Luckily, we had a backup trigger in the office, so we all came up here. No fault. The cycle was able to be saved, but her retrieval had to be done later because her trigger was later. So we'll have to make adjustments. Luckily for us, the lab and anesthesia and everybody could accommodate this time. But if you take your trigger at the wrong time, there's a chance your cycle will be totally compromised or won't be able to be completed. So we as physicians are really compulsive at making sure the trigger is done at the right time and done appropriately. Now, after the trigger, we'll go to the egg retrieval. So 35 to 36 hours later, you come in for the egg retrieval, and the egg retrieval at almost all centers is done under anesthesia. So it is a light anesthetic. It is not a complete anesthetic. You don't have a breathing tube in your throat. You're not paralyzed. It is usually a combination of propofol, sometimes with fentanyl or Versed, depending on who's running it. In my current practice, our IVF lab is in our office, and we have anesthesia come here. So an anesthesiologist runs all of our anesthesia. And that's great because I'm not an anesthesiologist, and I don't want to be in charge of it. But so you'll get here early, you'll meet with anesthesia, you'll get an IV place, you'll be taken to the back, and you'll be put asleep. You will not remember the process. Anesthesia in this fashion is low risk but not no risk, and the anesthesiologist will go over the risks with you. I actually say that about the egg retrieval in general. This is a super low risk procedure, less than 1% of complications. But complications can happen. That's because we are putting a needle through your vagina attached to an ultrasound and entering into your ovaries, draining out the eggs. So we're draining all these follicles that have grown and collecting your eggs and test tubes. And any procedure has risks. So the most common risks with an egg retrieval include bleeding, infection, or damage to surrounding structures. The risk of all of these is less than 1%, but that's not zero. So there's a chance you may not get all the eggs we saw on ultrasound out at your retrieval, and that's because we're trying to do this in a safe fashion. There's also certain anesthesia risks as far as understanding the setting. IVF egg retrievals can be done in different places. It can be done in a lab inside your clinic, like mine is, it can be done in a surgery center, or it can be done in a hospital. And clinics have different setups for a variety of different reasons. Often, if IVF is done in an outpatient setting completely, then anesthesia wants to make sure they're setting themselves up for success. So very high-risk patients, patients with severe cardiac disease, or those with a very large BMI, they may limit and say, I don't feel comfortable doing this. Sometimes you can send them to anesthesia for clearance or for a visit. Sometimes it may be something that weight loss is required first or going to a different facility that can accommodate you in a surgery center or hospital where they can intubate you and put you on a breathing machine and transfer you to an ICU if something terribly goes wrong. But for the most part, the egg retrieval is very low risk. The eggs are taken out of the body and they are put in test tubes. And then those eggs are looked at in the lab right away to determine which ones are mature 
or which ones had resumed meiosis and can be fertilized. The immature eggs cannot be fertilized. A sperm sample is then collected if we're proceeding down this path. So it can either be a frozen sperm sample, donor sperm, it can be a fresh testicular sperm extraction, or for the most part, it's just ejaculated fresh sperm. And that sperm will be used to fertilize the eggs. A quick note, if you're doing egg freezing, everything I just said is exactly the same up till this point. Eggs will be frozen. Eggs would then be thawed and put back in and you finish out this IVF process later. But presuming you're listening to this episode because you're interested in IVF, we would go right away. There are instances where women have their eggs frozen because we can't get sperm. Let's say the husband can't collect on this day or there was no sperm found on an extraction procedure. So if that's the case, we would just freeze your eggs and then thaw them later once we did in fact have sperm. That's not optimal because eggs, not every egg usually survives the freeze-thaw process. As I talked about in the egg freezing episode, usually it's about an 85% survival rate of eggs. And you don't want to lose eggs for no reason. So the ideal world is that we have sperm ready to be fertilized at the time of retrieval. There are two different types of fertilization. So there's conventional and then there's ICSI or ICSI. Conventional, think about it this way. You have a Petri dish. We put your eggs in it and I squirt cleaned sperm on top of it, cover it and put it in the incubator and fingers crossed, wait to see what happens next. Meaning I'm going to pull it out of the incubator the next day and see how many have fertilized. This is when IVF was first created. This was the only way. This is how we fertilized eggs. ICSI is an extra technology that now allows us to single inject one sperm into one egg. So ICSI stands for intracytoplasmic sperm injection, and it is the selection of one sperm and we're putting it in the egg. Even with ICSI, it's not perfect, so not every egg will be fertilized. The average fertilization rate is about 75%, so there's a lot of loss in this process. So we have to make sure we're aware of that, and if we're choosing conventional fertilization, there is a chance of completely failed fertilization, meaning if fertilization is the reason why you have unexplained infertility, then we may pull out the Petri dish the next day and have no eggs fertilized. That's pretty devastating. So if for unexplained infertility or for severe male factor, a lot of us prefer to do ICSI. Or sometimes we're choosing to do ICSI just because we're fearful of being in that circumstance, meaning it's a lot of work to get to that day and find out none fertilized. But it can happen. It can even happen with ICSI. So 75% are good odds, but that means people fall on both sides of them. Of the eggs that are fertilized, Embryos then have to grow out in culture. So the culture process takes the embryos and it is a non-toxic environment where we are giving them all the nutrients they need as they grow. Egg and sperm in a normal natural cycle meet in the fallopian tube and that's where fertilization happens. Over the course of the next five to six days, an embryo is formed and developed and grows as it moves through the fallopian tube into the uterine cavity. Now, this is the normal stage of implantation, day five or six, and we call that a blastocyst. An embryo is 100 to 200 cells. We currently do the majority of blastocyst transfers. They have higher success rates 
largely because there's a huge selection bias. Embryos that aren't going to make it through the culture didn't make it through the culture. So these are inherently stronger embryos. Also, they are more developed and have a certain appearance. So we know how they look. So the standard is if you're getting a fresh transfer, that means that after your egg retrieval, egg retrieval is day zero, five days later on day five, you would have an embryo put inside. There are a lot of reasons why we're not doing that as much anymore, although that used to be a standard. Actually, many embryos used to be put inside on day three, so even earlier. The culture process has gotten better, so most labs are taking embryos to blast, and we do that all the time here. I have done a day three transfer on a patient because we only had one embryo and there were just certain circumstances and she does have a live born baby from it. So day three transfers aren't bad. They were the original transfers. But as our culture system has gotten better and as we have been able to see better growth of embryos and select them, we are taking more people through the blastocyst stage. The blastocyst stage has also dramatically changed the survival rate of the freeze thaw process the selection of embryos, and how we can do genetic testing of embryos. But either way, if you're getting a fresh transfer, so a transfer in the same cycle that the eggs are getting retrieved, it would be on most likely day five, but potentially day three. You would need to start progesterone after your egg retrieval to get the lining prepared appropriately, and then your transfer would happen after this, and that would be all determined. You have to continue progesterone until your pregnancy test and actually until about the nine to 10 week mark of the pregnancy because your body will not make enough natural progesterone because all these follicles have been disrupted. If you are going to have a fresh transfer, then you'll need progesterone, which can be a oral, a vaginal, or an injectable. Most people will use a vaginal progesterone in a fresh embryo transfer cycle. Super transparent, I still do fresh transfers, but they are the minority of my patients. Most of my patients are not candidates for fresh transfers. That's either because they have a high risk of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, just like the type of trigger shot we choose is important there, so is the type of transfer, meaning getting pregnant severely increases the chance of OHSS. So if you're at risk for that, we're not going to do a transfer and all your embryos have to be frozen. So very good prognosis patients do not get fresh transfers. Similarly, if you need genetic testing of your embryos, either for a screening or for diagnosis, then your embryos will be biopsied at that blastocyst stage. So five to seven cells will be removed. The embryo will be frozen, and those cells will then be evaluated to see if the embryo is genetically normal. This type of testing is called PGT, pre-implantation genetic testing. It is changing the game for us dramatically because we are able to determine which embryos have the highest chance of success of giving you a live baby by looking at which ones are euploid or have the right number of chromosomes. But when we do PGT, all of the embryos are frozen and then a transfer happens later. A note about genetic testing. So this technology is amazing, but no technology is perfect. What we do is these cells are each analyzed. So five to seven cells come out, they all get sent to a lab, and there's different ways this testing is done, meaning the most common is screening. That's actually called PGTA, so pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy. Aneuploidy means an abnormal chromosome number. So we are determining if these embryos have the right number of chromosomes. That's the most common cause of miscarriage. 
and the number one reason why pregnancies don't implant as women get older. So as you get older, you have more aneuploid embryos. And one study looked at women at different ages to determine their rate of aneuploidy based on their age. So women who were less than 35 had a 27% chance of aneuploidy. Women who were between 35 to 37 had a 38% chance. Women 38 to 40 had 55%. And women 41 and older had 72%. So the easiest way to conceptualize this is if you're 41, 72% of the embryos that you're going to make are going to be genetically abnormal. They are not going to have the normal amount of chromosomes to result in a live birth. This is why there are strength in numbers because some of these odds, if you put it all together, not every egg will fertilize on average 75% of those embryos that are formed. About 50% usually make it through the culture to the blastocyst stage. If you test those blastocysts based on your age, you're looking at having anywhere from a 30 to 70% chance of having normal embryos. So everybody's usually losing some at that stage. And then every normal embryo doesn't implant either. So if we are doing genetic testing, strong recommendation, transfer one embryo. And then success rates, live birth rates with that are about 60 to 70%. That's huge. We're overcoming a major limitation. So the average success rates, if you don't do genetic testing, are stratified by age. And so the most recent SART data, which is one of the databases that collects information on IVS success, is collected from 2015. Remember, it takes a while to gestate and have a child. So live birth rates in women stratified by age, if you're less than 35, 53%. If you are 35 to 37, 40%. If you're 38 to 40, 26%. 41 to 42, 12%. And 43 and older, 4%. That 4% success rate in the 43 and older is not any different than the natural chance of getting pregnant at that age. And that's why some clinics do have age limitations of not doing IVF if you're over 42, unless there's some reason you could not get pregnant naturally. So if you have blocked tubes or if the sperm is severely abnormal and you're not going to get pregnant naturally, you may be an exception. But very often, clinics will have upper age limits. It's not to protect their success rates. That's a terrible thought because everybody in the 43 and older group has bad success rates. It's really because is it ethical to take your money for something if it is not at all increasing your chance of success over nature? And I think that's really patient-specific. So we have age guidelines, but we do make exceptions based on certain patient cases. And that's important to know that you can't just do IVF forever and get pregnant. And your odds of making that normal embryo, so if you say, okay, well, I'll do IVF and genetic testing because I'm 40, I'm a big fan of that, but your odds of getting to that normal embryo, it's going to be harder. You have to put more embryos into the lab to do the testing, and that may be harder if you're running out of eggs. So understanding the strength in numbers is really important. And again, not every genetically normal embryo will implant. 60 to 70% is not 100, and it's never going to be. As humans, we love 100. We love it. But the truth is, genes aren't everything. Yes, having a genetic code that's normal is essential, but genes have to be turned on and off. Cells have to divide. Organs have to form. 
plenty of genetically normal individuals can have birth defects and your body has to be able to accept a pregnancy. So there's still many things that have to happen to get that baby from being placed into your uterus into holding that baby in your arms. One approach is that as women are older, we often will go through potentially multiple cycles of IVF so that we can have enough genetically normal embryos to have a higher chance of multiple children. So if you're starting your family planning journey at 39, but you want more than one child, we may do more than one cycle of IVF, test genetic normalcy before we start transferring embryos. Because these embryos are frozen, we can just lead into a secondary cycle before we go into a frozen embryo transfer or an FET. I usually counsel patients that I want at least two normal embryos for every child you would ideally like to have, but that's not hard set in stone and certainly your goals may change based on how easy or hard this process is for you. A thing about how many embryos to transfer. So when embryos are untested, we have guidelines that permit us or guide us that it's okay to transfer more embryos as women are getting older. And that's because of this genetic abnormality. We know not every embryo is going to be normal. So sometimes we try to overcome that by putting multiple embryos in. If your embryos are tested and they are genetically normal, the strong recommendation is to put one embryo in. I always say, why make this embryo that we worked so hard to get go compete for resources? We should let it implant wherever it wants in the uterus, get the full blood supply and attention to grow that placenta in as best as it can to have the highest chance of the ultimate goal, bringing a live, healthy baby home. But even putting one embryo in doesn't mean that there's zero risk of twins. There is about a 2% chance of embryo splitting that would be monozygotic or identical twins coming from the same embryo. And depending on when that time happens, they may still be in their own sac or they may share a sac. There's different risks involved there. But this risk of embryo splitting is higher than nature, which is about a half a percent. And we really want to be cautious if we're putting two embryos in, you could potentially be in a position to have quadruplets if they both split. Totally suboptimal for us there. And just another side note about genetic testing is that we talked about PGTA, which is screening for aneuploidy, which is the most common done. Some couples also need different types like PGTM or PGTSR. These are testing for single known gene abnormalities. So a good example of PGTM, it stands for monogenetic, is BRCA gene. So if BRCA gene is in your family and you're wanting to screen it out, then we would make a probe for where that BRCA gene lies and also test for it. You will lose more embryos this way because you'll still be in your age-related risk of aneuploidy, but then based on the penetrance of your disease, you will also lose some embryos because they are carriers or affected with the said disease that you're screening for. I'm going to end by saying there are a lot of different ways that we can do embryo transfers. We talked a little bit about a fresh transfer here, but there's different options for the protocol for a frozen embryo transfer. And I'm going to have a totally different episode just on the embryo transfer to go over some of these differences. But the basic is it's much easier than going through an egg retrieval cycle. It is mostly estrogen-based for a couple of weeks, trying to get the lining to thicken up and grow, and then we'll start progesterone and do a transfer five or six days later. There's a lot of different testing or options you can do for implantation failure and this and that and what lifestyle factors impact success. So look out for that episode in the future. I do believe that lifestyle factors matter. We want to optimize our chance of having healthier eggs. And so I do recommend 
potential vitamins or supplements based on your AMH or your age. And so that may be CoQ10 or DHEA. I recommend vitamin D, prenatal vitamins. I do like exposure avoidance to toxic chemicals and closest we can get to the most plants and vegetables, whole foods in your diet. I'm a plant-based diet fan. I covered a lot of this in the naturally infertile episode. So you can listen and see what lifestyle factors can impact infertility overall. Thank you so much for listening. I know this is a longer episode than some, but I really appreciate it. I'm going to be doing a couple follow-ups. And so one will be about the embryo transfer and another will be your IVF questions. For that one, I'm going to have a place where you can submit questions and we'll go through your questions and I'll answer them about what questions you have for IVF or embryo transfers in the future. Feel free to follow me on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. Check out the blog at nataliecrawfordmd.com. And I really do appreciate every rating, review, share. Your support of this podcast means the world for me. Thanks so much. <laughs>